0: Fabulous listeners, thanks for tuning in to Old Bodies Outside. This is your host, Brian Peterson. This episode's guest is author Ted Alvarez. He has written several books, including Ask a Bear Everything You Ever Wanted to Know and Weren't Afraid to Ask About Bears, The National Park's Coast to Coast 100 Best Hikes, The Survival Hackers Handbook, how to Survive with Just About Anything, and the wilderness, idiot, less, the wilderness Idiot, Lessons from an Accidental Adventurer. In 2024, Ted will be releasing another book titled, Hiking Hidden Gems in America's National Parks. I invited Ted on the Old Bodies Outside because recently I finished reading his book, The Wilderness Idiot. In this book, Ted demonstrates that you don't need to be an expert to adventure in the outdoors and that sometimes we benefit when we go beyond our comfort zone. Ted, it's a pleasure to have you on Old Bodies Outside.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Where are you connecting in from?
1: Uh, I'm out in Seattle, Washington in the lovely Pacific Northwest.
0: Okay. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm uh, looking. I'm out in Kansas, as you are, are aware, and tomorrow I'm taking off for uh, Angel Fire um, up above the mountains in
1: Taos. Yeah. I love Angel Fire.
0: Yeah. I've never been there.
1: Oh, you're in for a treat. Uh, Taos, the whole area is really, really spectacular. I've spent a decent amount of time there, and uh, before I was in Washington, I was in Colorado for about six or seven years, and um, yeah, i just spent a lot of time in in New Mexico and Colorado, and that that area all around Taos is is really special. You're gonna you're gonna enjoy it. I don't know if you're gonna climb Wheeler Peak, but if you do, you'll you'll have a blast. So,
0: yeah, I I don't know what lies ahead. So it's it's an annual uh, trip with my buddies and um we usually as we're getting older we used to do more adventuresome stuff and now we do less uh kind of less impactful stuff so we do some mountain biking we'll do some hiking maybe a little bit of trail running um we'll probably pay for a guide to take us rafting and just overall kind of we'll get our recreation in each day and then just kind of relax in airbnb at the nighttime just have a good time heck yeah yeah so going back in, in your life Um, you've written some awesome books, but where did it start for you? How did you get into outdoor adventures?
1: It's uh, like, you know, like a lot of people, it started in some ways with my parents, but not, not entirely. Um, I have a, I, I grew up mostly in Texas, in Houston, Texas, which is not a place that you think of as an outdoor wonderland, but even from a young age, uh, two things kind of conspired to get me out there, which is, I just... I loved wandering into like the patches of piney woods and the bayous, catching snakes, things like that. I just kind of wanted to go further and further, and um, I was I was fortunate enough to visit Colorado, New Mexico, and my, my my parents were skiers, which meant we would we would ski like on the mountain, etc. But I would always wonder like what's out there? Like you know we're on these trails and here's all the people, but like what? What what's out there if I just keep going that way, where um, where there aren't any people, and you know that that kind of stuck with me for for a long time, and and then uh, but I didn't really I didn't really camp or do anything, you know I'm I'm always jealous of working in the outdoor uh, media industry. I have so many colleagues who have who grew up, you know, the first time they climbed El Cap was when they were 15 with their dad or whatever, like, you know, they just grew up in this, which is not what I did. Um, but I I took a college road trip and it, it was built around the national parks. And so a friend from Wisconsin, neither of us experienced at all, like, you know, we're sleeping in white sands, you know, with a notepad on the sand, you know, just like a Coleman sleep, whatever, sleeping bag, freezing our asses off, um, you know, popping into Glacier and seeing signs of bears and wondering if that means we're going to get eaten that night, like, just completely dunderheaded stuff. But that was the moment when I was really hooked when I was like, I sort of took that childlike enthusiasm of like, what's out there. And then, you know, you're like late teens, early 20s, like, nothing can stop me. I'm afraid of nothing. So I'm gonna go do it. Um, And and that's really where the where the bug kind of kind of bit me and and, um, hasn't really, really let go. So
0: yeah. You know, for me, I was I was a cross-country runner in middle school, high school and college. And I I'd kind of do some trail running and whatnot. And then in my uh, 20s, I took my first backpacking trip and I remember mm-hmm. that first backpacking trip really well. And I remember the, the sensation. It was like, gosh, this has been missing from my life. Like, I just want to backpack mm-hmm. all the time now and just fell in love with it immediately. And it, it, it really enriched my life immediately. It was it was, it was phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I, I completely recognize that Like the the road trip that I did, where, you know, we backpacked without even knowing what backpacking was like, uh, in both Glacier and White Sands, memorably, and, and a few other places, it's like, we well, you have to get a permit. And then like, wait, we're, we didn't even have backpacks. We were just kind of like carrying our stuff back with us. We were pretty inexperienced and, and, and not really, not, not really with it, but, but again, yeah, it was such an, it was such an eye opening thing that it it really kind of, it, it directed both my, my, you know, hobbies and then also eventually my career. So it's just, yeah, hasn't let go yet. So yeah,
0: yeah, (laughs) hasn't let go yet. That's right. That's great. So, you know, one of the things with the outdoors is there's getting out and having some physical activity. Uh, you know, getting some escape from the, the daily rhythms of life, but there's also the natural component. All that combined can be just so powerful on well-being. And I was wondering if that's something that you've experienced as well. How does that affect your well-being, getting outside and doing some of this adventure stuff?
1: I, I think for me personally, and I think for most people, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to analyze, but I, I mean, I wouldn't want to overgeneralize, but I think for most people it's a healing thing for me it's 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 certainly a healing thing where uh, there's not a single time that uh, you know the weekend rolls around or you have a spare amount of time and you're like oh you know it's such a hassle to pack up the car and get out there and but i, I there's never been a time when i regretted it and to me it's this constantly renewable source of of calm and peace. And it's just a, it's the most surefire way, whatever you're going through, whatever struggles you're dealing with, uh, personal, professional, familial, it's just really hard for me to find anything that, that so reliably and so completely, uh, just centers you and, and makes you feel both more like yourself and then also gets you over yourself, like the, your ego, whoever you are, that all falls away and you just realize you're part of something bigger. And that can, that can happen in a city park and it can happen in, in the wild. Um, I think I, I, um, I've read some research about wilderness therapy and how they've, they, you know, certain, certain, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists will actually prescribe, uh, wilderness medicine, wilderness therapy to, uh, to everything from, people suffering from PTSD to depression to anxiety, all kinds of all kinds of mental health issues that, that people might be struggling with and in many cases just spending a period of, of time outside is equal or better than, than medication. I I mean, that's, this is not medical advice. That's not to say you should stop taking your meds, (laughs) but it's very, it's very compelling to me that there's now started, you know, it's something I think we feel intuitively, which is that we feel better when we're outside, right? Even when you're a little kid, you want to go play outside. It's something you feel intuitively, but now we're starting to get a body of research that backs up why and you learn that you know any small amount is good but it it really becomes exponential the more the more that you spend time outside and so it really is just a matter of like starting with that like an hour around the block and then two hours in your park and then a day you know at your nearby national park state park whatever and then graduate to an overnight and um some of the research there's a, there's apparently a period where at, after 3 days in the wilderness you spend you 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 sort of reach a a new a new horizon or a new plateau where after 3 days the benefits just become like exponential day over day and that doesn't mean that um, that doesn't mean that you know everybody needs to be outside all the time but what it what it means is that you know if once twice a year you're lucky enough to spend a week you know, that that'll just give you dividends for the rest of the year. And there's there's a reason why if you asked me what I did, you know, the week that I was in Seattle, you know, this week last year, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But if you asked me what I was doing on the third day of my trip in, the, you know, on Copper Ridge in the North Cascades. I can remember it so vividly and just carry carry that feeling with me. It, it's something that you take back with you when you go back to those stresses, you know, and back to the daily grind, whatever you're doing. It, it stays with you. And it, of course, doesn't have the negative side effects that other ways of coping might have. So,
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that was a fantastic explanation. And I like that you talked about building up to some of this. Like, I think that it's easy to go and see an REI, magazine or other magazines. And it's like, whoa, those people are out there backpacking. I don't have any experience doing that. That's uh, intimidating. And I th- I like the way that you were like, hey, like it's, you can definitely build up to it, you know, go out to your your local park in the city, then maybe try a state park after that. And then, you know, try backpacking out in National Park after. I thought that was a really cool thing. And then secondly, have you ever read the author Edward Abbey?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. It's, I, I was trying to remember which book of his in it, he stated, and it's probably desert solitaire, mm-hmm. uh, but he talked about how when he would be out uh, in nature for a certain amount of days, it was almost like a threshold. He really mm-hmm. felt like he was reaping all the psychological benefit. And it would take, I think, you know, you mentioned three days. I think he was saying for his personal self, he was experiencing about like five or six days or something like that. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, that type of thing exists. And I think that the longer you're out there, you start really reaping these exponential benefits, as you said. Um, Not too long ago, so you know how early in your explanation, you talked about how going out and, and, you know, going for a trip, like, it can cause anxiety because you got to pack stuff up. There's a lot of different gear components and whatnot. Um, This past August, um, last summer, I got married out in Colorado in the Silverton area. And um, I wanted to connect with my stepson, um, who was about to become my stepson. And he had never been backpacking before. So we did a one-nighter um, up at Island Lake. And I remember like we were taking all our wedding stuff from Kansas. we put into a trailer. We're going to drive over to Colorado. And I was like, man, I've packed so much stuff for wedding, all these details. I don't know if I want to pack for one night of backpacking. And I got to say that one night of backpacking, my stepson was the coolest thing ever. Like we had such a blast, like perfect weather. We didn't have to sleep under a tent. He saw the Milky Way for the first time. He saw like seven shooting stars. He's counting different satellites floating across the sky. Like just powerful. It's amazing.
1: That's great to hear. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I I mean, that's, I have so many experiences like that. And like, that's, I've, there are people that I don't see as often as I would like, but whenever our friendships are cemented in those kinds of experiences, and I've had this with family members, with, close friends with people who I didn't even know until I went on this trip. And now we're lifelong friends. There's something, there's something about being outside and, and pursuing these type of activities that just like really, I don't know, it just really cements your bond. And that, that, that can even be when you're having a really bad time. Like there's a something in the, in the biz that we refer to as like type two fun and type two fun is like when you're out there, it's not, it's not a good time. You're getting rained on. Everything is breaking. You run out of food, but those type two fun trips, those are the ones you talk about. Those are the ones that you laugh about forever. You know, it's like even when you're having a bad time, you're having a great time. As long as you're safe, even when you're having a bad time, you're having a good time. And I think that's pretty hard to say for most facets of urban life. Like when you have a bad time, you just have a bad time, you know? So
0: yeah, maybe, you know, that type two fun uh, involves a little bit of discomfort, getting uncomfortable, and maybe that kind of just like burns into the brain a little bit more. Um, and I've was, i I've certainly experienced that too. And I know that like, we're kind of talking in a simplified way, but like, I feel like with some of those trips, like there's a mutual sense of accomplishment when you go with others and it really, like, I have felt them really, as you were talking to strengthen my bonds, no matter who it's with, if it's with my wife, my stepkid, kid friends or maybe someone i don't even know that well which has happened to me before where i was going to go on a group backpacking trip and everyone canceled except for one guy i didn't even know really well and we went and we became best friends afterwards
1: it was well, amazing yeah it, it is great it's really really it's really powerful i it's like i said i think you, you'd be hard you'd hard be hard pressed to find anything that that just brings so many different has the potential to bring so many people from so many different backgrounds together you know so yeah,
0: so do you know what countries have started to prescribe uh, willingness therapy? Because I think I've heard about it in Canada.
1: Canada, I've heard of. Um, I would not be surprised if the Nordic con- countries have done this. Uh, they they seem to be pretty forward-thinking with a lot of that. I don't know that for sure. I'd have to look that up. I know one of the earliest countries to start doing research and prescribing it is was uh, Japan. Because in Japan, really? they... They have, um, they have something, I think it's loosely translated to forest bathing, which, and so you can, forest bathing is just spending time in the forest. And um, there's a writer named Florence Williams who wrote a book about it. Um, she's an outside writer. And she wrote a book basically about that sort of Japan being on the forefront of that kind of research. And I think they might have had the some of the first because this is now probably six or seven years ago and i think they had some of the first medical professionals who could actually prescribe forest bathing to 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 clients yeah
0: yeah i patients. i had the um i had the the luck of meeting florence williams so she was getting some yeah. sort of award when i was a phd student at clemson university and all the professors were busy with preparing for this award ceremony and they were giving awards to people that had a great influence on uh, getting people out to in nature areas and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. Florence Williams was a great person to win this type of award. Not remember exactly the details of the award, but nonetheless, uh, everyone was busy and there was a call to ph to the grad students. Can someone go to the airport 45 minutes away, drive over and pick up Florence Williams? And I was like, oh, please, I will do that. And so I got to pick up Florence Williams and uh, drive her for 45 minutes and probably bug the crud out of her. Um, but none- oh. <laughs> She was super, super great and fantastic. And um, I have read The Nature Fix. I read it back in, yeah. oh gosh, maybe like 2014,
1: 2015-ish. Yeah, it, was, it was a minute ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it, it had a big effect on me. I really, like, it was something that, like, it was like, oh man, like, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it, it was, and I loved how she brought together the research and then explained it in a way that was accessible too. That mm-hmm. was really cool.
1: Yeah, she's great at that, whether she's, I think one of her books was about, was basically like a, a a cultural history of like breasts, something like whatever her topic is, she always finds a way to approach it in a way that's like really accessible, really interesting, and usually not what you were expecting. She's, she's, she's brilliant. I've met her yeah. once or twice. She's great.
0: Okay. Okay. So speaking of Japan, um, you, you've done a little bit of backpacking out there in the, the furthest Northern Island of Japan, right?
1: A little bit, yeah, out in uh, Hokkaido. There's a really, really wonderful national park called Daisetsuzan that sort of compasses the highest peaks of, of Hokkaido. Um, yeah, I, I went out there for an assignment that was really, really fun.
0: Yeah, how long were you out there for?
1: I was out there, the trip was probably a seven-ish day trip. Uh, it required some improvisation because the, the assignment was, you know, can you go to a place like Japan, one of the most densely populated places on earth and and find a a a truly wild place and you know japan is a really interesting japanese culture is super interesting and that you know yes you have this profusion of population and density and people but then classically at least a lot of their there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of respect for nature like like pulled into their culture and so you, you, can, you can find a lot of that even in urban areas. But this was like, well, what, what is the wildest part of Japan? And, and that's Hokkaido. So if people who J- hear that I've been to Japan, they're like, how's, you know, Tokyo or whatever. And I'm like, well, I, I went to Japan's Idaho or Montana. Like I haven't been <laughs> to the cultural center, you know, except to the airport. Um, but it was, uh, it was really spectacular. And part of it was that this, so the park is called Daisetsuzan, it's in the middle of hokkaido it's kind of the biggest chain of peaks uh anchored by volcanoes you know they're on the ring of fire asahi is the biggest volcano and hokkaido known for skiing you know they get it's one of the snowiest places on earth and so they get a lot of skiing but they're not as well known for backpacking or wilderness travel and there's a hut system up there and at the time at least um japanese tourists and wilderness adventures were much less likely to to camp um they, but they would use the huts you know they would go up and, and stay in the huts kind of like new zealand or the alps but there's this huge stretch in the middle where you can camp and they have some established campsites but they're they're not as popular just because there isn't as much of a at the time at least there wasn't as much of a tradition of backpacking and so my whole idea was to, to reverse the whole the whole chain, and um, and yeah, kind of use the huts and then continue beyond the huts. And I had a guide with me, which was great for the first three days. But then she had there's like a flower. This is kind of very Japanese culture. There's a, a certain flower bloom, a very specific flower bloom, and that was like her her high season is like all these like people come and they want to see these flowers. And even though she was like an AMGA guide, you know, I think she climbed Denali like hyper. I could tell that she kind of wanted to continue with me into the bigger mountains, but she's like, I got to go be the flower guide. That's where the money is. And so she left me and I just did the rest of the route by myself, uh, which was a little bit challenging. I couldn't read any of the trail signs, you know, for, for obvious reasons. And, um, and it happened to be a really heavy snow year uh, in one of the snowiest places on earth. So even though it was July, my final, final mountain to climb, I believe was called, I think it was called Oputarteshke or something. And um and it was basically there was like an eight hundred foot snow slope at like maybe forty degrees. And, um, I had an, I had an ice ax, but I did not have, I had, and I had micro spikes, but not real crampons. And so I got like a hundred feet into that. And I was like looking at the run out and I'm like, this is just not smart. And the, and the weather was getting really gnarly. And so I basically had to bail, but what is wonderful about Japan, and I wish we could import it here is that in Daisetsuzan on the edges are these tiny towns and in each of those towns, there's an onsen, which is like a traditional hot spring bathhouse. And so, you come down from the mountains, and you end up at like at a spa resort. I mean, like not, a, oh, they're more man. rustic than that. But you can you have these like hot, you know, natural hot springs, hot tubs, and the vending machines have cold beer, and the kitchens are preparing like fish that they just fished from the river. And I'm like, we. I'm like, we need this now, like everywhere. Like, why can't I, why can't I come out of Rainier and just like jump into a hot tub everywhere? So, it's yeah. uh, it was really great. It was really spectacular.
0: Yeah, jump out into a hot tub, drink some Japanese whiskey. It doesn't sound too bad.
1: Not at all. And they and they have the the surprising part was they have they have brown bears on um, on Hokkaido. There's black bears all over the rest of Japan, but then they have brown bears because Hokkaido used to be connected to, uh, I believe the to russia and then was separated so there are some there are brown bears up there and i saw definitely saw tons of bear sign and then i saw one brown bear from far away but it was like oh you don't you don't expect in japan to have to be worried about brown you know grizzly bears but but, they, wow. but they, were, they were there so
0: yeah and so probably during the last ice age the islands connected up to like maybe kamchatka or something
1: i think it's kamchatka yeah there's like the little a little tale of um I can't remember the name of the exact, you know, province in Russia. I might be Kamchatka, but, um, but yeah, there's like a little string of islands that used to connect Hokkaido. And so Hokkaido vegetation wise, it's like, it's like transitional between Japan and what you would find on, on mainland Russia, mainland Eastern Russia.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. That's cool that you went out and backpacked at the, the northernmost island, Hokkaido. Yeah, in Japan. Yeah. That's, I've was, never met anyone that's done that before.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, I know people who've gone there to ski and, you know, it's, I think it's become, you know, more and more of a destination for powder hounds. People who are looking for just tons of snow, but um, but yeah, it's not as well known for, for backpacking. And as such was, I'd say the story did what it was supposed to do. It found like a really, really quiet, beautiful place in, in Japan in a place where you least expect it, you know, so.
0: And it, had, it has to be very interesting, you know, just seeing how, different cultures interact with nature. And I think that in the United States, we have a lot of different cultures in the United States. And there's a lot of different um, cultural imaginaries of how to interact with nature. And then also, you know, being in Japan, there's probably differences in how they manage their public lands. And I think that's all some stuff that's really interesting. And with me being a professor, I mean, a lot of my research is with the National Park Service, with U.S. Forest Service, and we're, we're giving them information to help more effectively manage their public lands but we never do any like meta-analysis to see like how do other countries do this and whatnot and i'm always curious to hear about their kind of ways they go about it
1: well one thing that was really fascinating and if you if you write uh you know i I, (laughs) i wrote a column for a long time called ask a bear that then became the book ask a bear and so for a long time i you know i spent most of that column answering some variation of if i have x thing in my tent will it attract a bear toothpaste candy bar deodorant whatever and like you know by and large the advice is do not do not you don't want anything with the scent in your tent right you want that you want to put that in a bear bag you want to put it in the canister you want to have it away but the japanese way of dealing with that was they're like no 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 you actually want the food in your tent like their their approach to management um, maybe it has changed, but at least, you know, at the time was our advice to use to keep the food in your tent, because it, I think the, they, they don't have a lot of bear attacks there. And so I think their thought was that if your food is elsewhere, it's possible that a bear can get it. And, and then you're attracting the bear. Whereas if, if it's in your tent, your, your presence will, will innately scare it off. And, you know, I'm not going to, I've done a ton of talking to bear management experts and I don't know very many from, you know, North American bear management who would agree with that assessment. But to me, it was such a, it was such a strange, it was such a different approach to that, that I, that I was, I was really surprised. And also, you know, we're a pretty individualistic culture and, and Japan is much more collective, much more like, you know, uh, you do everything for the greater good. And it's so here where it's much more like, Chase your own adventure. I remember when I was there at my trekking poles, I just didn't have, um, I didn't have uh, basket. The, yeah, I didn't. Have, or I no, I didn't have the little uh, like the rubber tips on the edge oh, yeah, of my yeah, trekking yeah. poles. So it it made you know, it would make noise on a rock, which is something we probably wouldn't think about at all here. But in Japan, my, my guide was like insistent that I had to, and I didn't have the tips and we were already in the backcountry, And so I had to tape them up with duct tape because that was the right thing to do. I can't, I can't risk disturbing other people by like tack tack tacking on the rocks. And I just thought that was such a different approach to be like, you know, rather than follow chase, your bliss, choose your own adventure. It's like, well, think about the collective. How are you affecting other people? It was just a really, really different approach to it.
0: Yeah, that was a great example you shared there. It was almost like being considerate of the micro sound, soundscape around you, you mm-hmm. know, and you know, you know, know, preventing the clink, 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 and, uh, you know, natural sounds are, are something that's great for health too, and so I guess yeah. maybe that's the, the thinking behind it.
1: Yeah, it's just something I never, I never would have thought about that. I, you know, I never even would have thought about it before, so... yeah ultra ultra lighting i would just be like oh no whatever it eliminates noise i don't need it you know so
0: (laughs) (laughs) i got my carbon fiber poles i'm good to go (laughs) exactly exactly. (laughs) so this summer my wife and i are we're going to go backpacking in yosemite we've done uh some good we've done some solid backpacking trips in uh, black bear country but we've never done and i've never done a backpacking trip in grizzly bear country so for summer of 2024 we're thinking of traversing the wind river range and Uh, um it is a an ongoing conversation of how we're going to prepare for grizzly bear country. And so uh, I'm going to put you on the spot and see what types of <laughs> recommendations you have for. Uh, I don't know if you've backpacked in the Wind River Range. Um, and we're mostly going to be above tree line, but we're going to be doing, um, we're going to be staying away from trails. We'll use trails a little bit, but for the most part, okay. we're going to GPS our route and do off trail nice. stuff. So it won't be where people regularly go. But um, How should I begin my preparations?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you're going to have a blast. The Wind Rivers are one of my absolute favorites uh, in the lower 48. It's like, I think it's uh, like everything. I'm sure we'll talk more about this later. Like everything, there aren't really that many last best kept secrets, but the the Wind Rivers are, it's pretty close. And if you're not going to like Titcombe Basin or one of the major spots, like it's going to be really empty. And I think it's like, I think it's spectacular, like outside of having the iconic skyline and the iconic, you know, granite of the valley of Yosemite Valley or the, or the the skyline of the Tetons, it like has everything that Yosemite or the Tetons would have kind of crammed together. This just like really amazing granite, wonderland, deep forests, solitude. It's kind of the best and wildlife. And, and um, I don't believe that the, grizzly bear population density like that's that's technically part of the greater yellowstone ecosystem but it's a little bit separate so the density of bears in the wind river is not very high so like the the like the likelihood that you will even see one much less encounter them is fairly low um i would i don't know this so don't quote me on it but if i had to guess based on the last numbers i paid attention to there are probably fewer than a hundred bears in the entirety of the wind rivers, which is a massive range. So the likelihood that you're going to see them is not high. That said, uh, I would bring, especially since you're going to be above tree line, bring a bear canister, bring as many as you need. You know, if it's going to be what, a week probably or more. It Might be to,
0: seven, to, seven to 10 days.
1: Seven to 10 days. So you probably need at least one bear canister per person. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, that actually gets to be, Pretty easy, like you know. I don't. I don't. As long as you keep, you know, smelly items out of your tent, and and uh, if you want to be really careful, um, which is usually a good idea, but especially in, in Alaska, there's like the Golden Triangle rule, which is you have your campsite here, you know, 200 yards that way, I believe, is where you have your cooking area, and then 200 yards that way is where you store your food. So that wow. you've, you've you've just got this triangle set up, so that even if bears are coming around, which in Alaska, depending on where you are, they probably will. They'll go to your they'll go to they'll go to maybe where your kitchen was, sniff around, go the other way. They'll maybe check out your food storage area. Hopefully, everything is protected, and they can't really get into it. But then they won't really have any reason to visit your tent. Um, so that that's like the most conservative way. The most conservative way is to do that. I think, like in a place like the Wind Rivers, uh, you might not have to go that far. You know, as long as your cooking area is a decent away from set a decent bit away from where your, your tent area is, and then your food storage area is a little bit farther than that, you're you're probably going to be good. As far as as far as on the trail, um you know, same as usual. Like I don't know how much you know about bear bells, but like the the, the effectiveness of bear Bells is pretty, pretty hotly debated. There's not a lot of evidence that they're great. The thing that bears seem to react to best of all is, um, is the human voice. So, you know, just, just talk, like have conversations and, you know, eventually you, you said you're going to be up there with your wife. Hopefully you'll have things to talk through and, and let her talk about. And, and that'll, that'll, that'll kind of take care of it. Um, but you know, above, above, uh, if you spend enough time eventually going to run out of stuff to talk about. And so then it's just a matter of, you know, saying, Hey bear every now and then, or, or whatever My (laughs) when I'm in Alaska, for whatever reason, I I sing like Van Halen songs, like every couple, every couple, uh, every couple, you know, maybe 30 yards or something, just shout something from running with the devil and, you know, keep going on and just alerting them to your presence will be fine. You don't have to be obnoxious about it because again, the bear density isn't that high and, and you're, you're you're there probably to enjoy some peace and quiet too, but just sort of alerting them to your presence so you never have to. It's it's kind of counterintuitive because obviously we I think some of us want to see a bear, but then it's probably better for you to alert them to your presence so that you never that you never have to. So yeah. those are the those are the two things between like food storage and and sort of trail behavior. That's kind of what I would what I would be paying attention to most. Yeah.
0: That's fantastic, and I, I did not know. I knew that it was the Wind River Range is kind of in that greater Yellowstone mm-hmm. uh, area, but I didn't know that the density was a lot less. So that was reassuring. I'll be sure to share that with my wife. Um, yeah,
1: make sure and look it up. Like I could be wrong, but I'm. I'm really... <laughs> getting it <laughs> no 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 i am fairly i'm fairly i'm fairly certain that that it's it's considerably less dense i'll put it this way i've spent an equal amount of time in yellowstone tetons and the wind rivers and i've seen grizzlies in both yellowstone and grand tetons and i've never seen one in the Wind rivers. okay so that just from okay. anecdotal evidence so
0: yeah yeah well we'll be out there um if we do make it happen in 2024 it'll be in the start of august that's when we always go backpacking my hope is especially with wind river range i've heard that the mosquitoes can be pretty wild and out of control um and so hopefully they've kind of died down by that time of the summer
1: hopefully the last time i was in the wind rivers for the eclipse actually the totality Mm. went right over Titcomb basin before going into the tetons and everybody of course went to the tetons because it has the facilities the wind river uh less so there were tons of people for the wind rivers but um but it was still relatively empty compared to the to to the tetons and it was really really wild to see the to see the to see the eclipse And, and kind of like at the lakes down in the trees the bug and this might have been the earlier part of august so probably more more mosquitoes but up high once you get up above tree line and the wind's blowing like it's bugs weren't too bad so down by the lakes they were a little rough but but up up in the high country it was pretty good
0: yeah gosh you saw the eclipse from the wind river range that's amazing yeah it's
1: it's it was a it was it was that was a life lister for sure it was like a we're gonna do this you only get one shot at this really so yeah
0: yeah and so for for back, i'm gonna continue on this wind river range piece of the conversation yeah, do the you day. recommend um backpacking with a tent or a tarp out there?
1: In August, I mean, it all depends on your level of comfort and, you know, you and your wife's comfort. Like I, I, you know, there are such ultra light, like tents are so ultra light these days that if there's any kind of discomfort, I don't know how experienced your, your wife is or, um, but you know, it's still like a high Alpine environment and like you can do Again, it's all, it's all dependent on your level of comfort. Like some people are great with tarp tenting and, and they don't care when the weather turns and if you're really experienced or they don't care. I mean, and I know they have tarp tents You know, now with sort of bug shields underneath that'll help with that kind of thing. Um, but if you, have, if you have the money or happen to have an ultralight tent, um, just having that little extra layer of, of protection um, without having to have everything dialed is sometimes worth it. Um, I'd say if you're a really comfortable tarp yeah. tenter and you've done tarp tenting, like, and the weather has turned like severe rain or snow or whatever, because that's always possible. I mean, I think if you're going to be traversing the spine, you're going to be above twelve, eleven, twelve thousand feet, which means like you will, you could get, you could get snow. It's not impossible, and so. Um, yeah, it it all depends on your comfort level, really. Like, if you know how to dial your tarp against most weather conditions, then sure, go for it. But if, if, even if people are just, like, a little bit nervous about bears, having that psych... It doesn't really make that much of a difference, but the psychological barrier... I've definitely been camping with people who were uh, way more comfortable, you know, in in the tent situation, and and it, it made no real difference. It just made the difference between them having a good time or not being able to fall asleep because they're thinking about bears. So those are, those are kind of the things that I, that I would think about.
0: Yeah. That perceived safety goes a long ways, you know, yeah. towards getting a nice sleep. And usually when we go backpack, we try to just sleep in the stars and we don't pull yeah. the tarp out if we don't have to, but we um, we're big fans of following Skirka routes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're finishing off one of his in Yosemite and then um, it's on to yeah. the wind river range next. And so, Skirkers routes always go up high, um, so we'll yeah. be you know probably up at you know hovering around nine thousand, eleven thousand feet for the most part. So it sounds yeah. like it's going to be a fantastic. Yeah,
1: trip. I mean, yeah. If you guys are used to following Skirker routes, it sounds like you're fairly comfortable tarp tenting, and I don't see any reason not to do that. So,
0: cool, cool. Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll stop with the the Wind River Range talk, and so I, I did want to talk to you though about level of comfortability out in nature when you're out backpacking and whatnot. And so uh, when I was reading the Wilderness Idiot, I think you said something there that you, 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 there's some benefit to be had by when you personally pursue adventures that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable before you go. Like maybe your stomach kind of has a little bit of uh, tension in it before you go. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's, um, is that important for you to pursue adventures that maybe like before you go, you're like, Hey, like a little bit uncomfortable. So therefore I should do this.
1: I think so. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think there's an important distinction here, which is that this isn't like pursuit of adrenaline. Like it's not like an adrenaline junkie type of thing where, uh, you know, I'm chasing some sort of danger, really staring death in the eye. You know, that's not, that's not really, that's not really my MO when I'm in the outdoors. And like, I think early in my career, my outdoor career, I kind of thought like, oh, well, maybe I will be that. Maybe I will try and tackle the seven summits or whatever. And then I quickly learned that I was like, eh, I'm just, I'm not either, I'm both not good enough. And like, I, I really don't have that bone in my body. That's like, uh, I've got to, uh, I've got to chase something dangerous to feel alive. You know, that that's not really where it comes from. But what I think it comes from is just having been, rewarded in the past every time that I have pushed through something or there's been something that's made me a little uncomfortable or I feel a little bit outside of my comfort zone um, usually I pay attention to that feeling because that that discomfort um, and you know there's a line if, if you feel truly truly nervous about it don't do it like when a, like I, I certainly pursued it too far where uh, at one point I almost did a hike in North Korea, a backpacking trip in North Korea. And I just had like, I just had this idea of like, this will be the craziest trip ever. And it would have been the craziest trip ever and very unsafe. And I'm glad that I didn't do it, but so <laughs> don't, let it, don't let it go too far, you know, don't let it go yeah. too far. But, but there is something about paying attention and, and really interrogating that sense of discomfort. Like, where is that coming from? Is it coming from because you don't feel ready for this? Well, then, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a way to get ready for it. Or is it just something you haven't experienced? And that to me is where there are just, you can reap huge rewards in the unknown. You know, there's, there's always some like calculation. It's not like, Oh, I'm going to jump off this cliff and just see what happens. Um, But, but that sense of discomfort, at least for me, tells me that I'm on the cusp of either, learning something new about a place or learning something new about myself. And both of those things are, are rewarding. They, they can be really rewarding. And that's even when things don't go according to plan, you know, as long, again, like safety is paramount. Like don't, don't try, don't get into situations where your, where your safety is compromised if you can avoid it while also stating that there's no such thing as anything being completely safe, you know? Uh, So Um, you you mitigate risk, but risk is always going to be a part of these activities. But, but, um, but yeah, every time, every time that I've pushed through there, there's always something to be discovered on the other side. And I think I've met so many people who even on a very basic level, they are like, well, I couldn't possibly do this. I couldn't possibly Spend a night outside. I couldn't possibly go to the bathroom in the woods. I've never done it before. How in the heck does one poop outside? You know, like so after bears, the thing that people who I take on, you know, their maiden camping voyages, the thing outside of bears that most terrifies people is going to the bathroom in the woods. And it's like this big hurdle. And, you know, once you do it, you are like, oh, I was actually built for this. There's like an there's. All of us, I believe, have more of a sort of institutional knowledge. Like we're, we're, we are not different biologically from people, you know, 10 years ago, a hundred years ago, 4,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, you will, you will know what to do in, in ways that will surprise you. So that's, that's why I've just, and and I've seen it outside of myself. Like maybe I'm willing to push myself into places that are, truly uncomfortable. Um, but then I, I just have so many experiences with friends, family, and, and and I consider myself very fortunate to have been the part of uh, first experience for somebody. And I, I try to make it as comfortable as I can, obviously, but there's some point in that trip where somebody's going to have to, they're going to have to face something within themselves and, and get over it. And I don't know, I don't know a single person yet from any of these stories who, who would, who wishes they hadn't done it. I just, I haven't met that person. I haven't met the person who hasn't been rewarded from sort of pushing past that discomfort.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, earlier on, on your explanation, I liked that you mentioned that that discomfort is it's a mental signal to, you know, you need to be checking yourself in terms of like, Hey, is that discomfort there? Because I didn't plan well enough. Is that going to put me into a, you know, a situation that's going to be extremely unsafe well then i probably shouldn't do it right like i mean this is just your body and your mind messaging to you and so it's it's important to tap into that and say what's my mind telling me here is it because it's an experience i've never had but i've planned accordingly everything appears safe well then maybe i should go for it and maybe you know push the bounds of my comfort zone and see how what that's like and see what types of benefits come from learning about that place or about myself but i think that was a really good point you made and that you know this is a signal from your mind and it is important to listen to that information and you know, make sure that you are well prepared before you step into a situation that is, you know, going to be uncomfortable. But you know, I, I feel like there is a lot to be gained from those experiences, and um, sometimes like just a heightened sense of, I don't know, feeling alive comes with Absolutely. it too, especially. Yeah,
1: yeah, the the feeling alive thing is like I, I think like we we're uh, we're just you know, it's, it's great. Like, I mean, and you can look at it both ways. Like one of my favorite things after a wilderness trip, I, I have this joke with almost a uh, ritual that I pull with almost anyone I'm out there with is like, at what point, depending on the length of the trip, when is it okay to start talking about your first meal when you're out? Cause you don't want to talk about it two days before and be thinking about pizza and burgers and tacos, like <laughs> day three, you know, there's three days to go and it's so far away and you're still eating oatmeal and whatever. Um, But at one point, like there is that anticipation where it's like, what is this burger going to taste? Like, are we going to get burgers? Are we going to get pizza? Are we going to have a shower? Like whatever your first meal is, is just it's the greatest meal you've ever had in your life. So it like it makes you appreciate what we have. But then it also helps you realize how little of that we need. Like it, it truly is convenient. Like you really don't need so much of what we have around us to be a functional happy healthy person existing in the world and um you're just not gonna you're not gonna you'll never encounter that if you if you don't if you don't get out there and kind of push past some of those things like what if i can't have a soda on demand it's like you're gonna be fine it's gonna be okay that soda is just gonna be that much better on the other side so
0: it certainly will be and i've definitely experienced that myself but you know. While out backpacking, one thing that I, I really enjoy a lot is um, it's pretty much, Hey, I, I'm eating the food I have. Mm-hmm. I'm going to walk from point A to point B. I'm going to stop when I see something cool. Or I'm going to stop when I need a rest, but I, I don't have 20 different sodas. I need to decide which one to choose to drink that day. It's like I got what I packed and that's it. So there's not a lot of decision process going Jack. on for like, you know, my amenities. And I think that's something that actually kind of calms my anxiety. having a little bit more simplistic approach to, to decision-making and, that ends up making my experience that much better.
1: Completely. We, we exist in decision fatigue. and like I, I think I read somewhere that to combat decision fatigue, Obama had like five suits or something. Or like three to five. So, you know, you'd think the president of the United States would have a billion suits to choose from, right? But he very right. specifically was like, I have five suits in five different colors for every kid. And that's so that I don't have to... Spend my time thinking about what I'm supposed to wear. I just, I grab the color that is supposed to work for that day and I'm done. And, you know, we are like, we're hobbled by decision fatigue. We have so many choices. We're surrounded by all of this. And, you know, being able to really pull down the veil and see like what is essential about the world and essential about being human, which is like, are you warm? Are you safe? Are you? well-fed. Are you hungry? You know, are you thirsty? Like these things where it's just very simple. It's not, it's not like, who am I going to see today, this weekend? What are going to be my plans? Where are we going to go? What are we going to eat when we get there? It's just being able to be fully present and be like, I have chosen to be here with this person or, or by myself. I have chosen to experience this at this moment. Yeah. All of that all that decision fatigue is gone and you're just, you are, you are just existing and you are as present as you possibly can be. And there's other ways to be present There's meditation. There's plenty of things people do, but that, this is just like a shortcut. Like, you know, I, I've meditated some, it's, it's like an ongoing thing. I have a buddy who's great at it and he'll he'll kind of like give me tips. And I just like, maybe I'm too uh, squirrely where I just, I have, I, I'll try, but I can't, I can't, it's harder for me to access. Whereas going outside it's just it's just instant it's just you are you are present you're forced to be present and um and that's it's a it's a great way to be i think
0: it it, it helps me a lot and when when i'm uh, at home and I'm, I'm i'm tending to my career and my family and my life i have a hard time falling asleep at night because i start focusing on the decisions i need to make the next day and when i'm out yeah. backpacking i don't have those decisions to be thinking about and i end up falling asleep a lot easier
1: absolutely and so many things that i think we we build up about as like how how we how we identify you know we live in a fairly egocentric society and that's that's just the way it is and so you're like who who am i like what is my career like who are my friends like what do i what do i mean to all these other people in society and then you you go into the wilderness and all the ego driven concerns fall away like it doesn't like I could yeah. be in the, in, I could be in the middle of the woods. I might not have a job right now. Like, I don't know if anybody knows that I'm a writer or cares or, or whatever, or, or how, whatever's happening in my life. It is, it is just me and the world in front of me. And that, that is being able to kind of turn away from your ego. when we are just, you know, we're just self-reinforced by that through everything and being able to do that is just like a privilege where you're just like, I, I'm not looking inward, I'm turning outward. And by turning outward, actually learning something about myself.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly is a privilege uh to, to be able to do some of these trips and whatnot. And I think that you had a really great point about the egocentric aspect of society. You know, We're constantly like, hey, like, trying to, you know, meet some certain merits with our career or maybe it's sometimes some social capital or whatever sure. it is. And like that stuff just doesn't really exist out there. Like, you know, if I passed you on the trail, there's no way I would know that you've written, I don't know how many books I listed in the introduction, four or five, but you know, you just yeah. be another backpacker out there that essentially yeah. looks like hiker trash.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're all, we're all smelly. We're all it's, it's a great, it's a great equalizer. And I don't know about you, but like even even when the weather's is terrible, it's pretty hard to find somebody in a bad mood, you know, like even I remember I was in Canada and like the weather. It had been like seven or eight days of rain, like a trip in Canada that I've been planning for months with a girlfriend at the time. And you get out there and it just doesn't go your way. Like it's like it's raining for like six days straight, you know, and all the tents are failing and like it's just it's, it's a slog but then like i ended up under like a giant tree like with four or five other backpackers so i didn't know and there we all are laughing and like one of them's like well i was saving this for the end of the trip but now seems like a time for me to share my tequila or whatever and you know you're laughing with strangers for a minute it's just like even when the situation's pretty rough like you don't you don't you don't see people in bad moods out there you know
0: and, and you know, exactly what you're talking about, the, the culture of, I don't know if I want to call it culture, but social interactions are a little bit different. Like if I'm walking down the street, um, unless I'm in a super, super rural area, area where there's not a lot of people, I'm not saying hi to every person. Um, yeah. But on the trail, like if I pass someone or if I pass someone anywhere backpacking, even if it's off trail, whatever, I'm going to say hi to them. And I'll yeah. probably end up talking to them for a few minutes. And like, yeah. I don't do that on a day to day basis.
1: No, you ask about, you know, if I walk to my neighborhood coffee shop, I'm not asking anyone about the weather, what they have at the coffee shop, you know, whereas on the trail, you're like, where are you coming from? What, what did you see? What do I need to know? What can I share with you? It's just like a, it's just bringing things down to like just basics a little bit. And that, that includes like basic human decency.
0: Yeah, it does. And you know, the trail works at this, as this conduit. So I'm thinking now the Pacific Crest Trail. So I, I was on the Pacific Crest Trail back in 2009. I spent about um, three months out there and I covered, um, I I covered California pretty much. And for those listening out there, the Pacific Crest Trail is a long distance hiking trail. It's about 2,650 miles spans from Mexico to Washington and blazes through California, Oregon, and Washington and on the Pacific Crest Trail, the passage, and this was in 2009, so it was not at the technological level that we have now. Um, There's a lot of oral transmission of information, um, mm-hmm. you know, like what's in that town, you know, did, where did you camp, especially where's the nearest water source when you're going through yeah. some desert portions of California. Um, and that was something that was really cool. Like, we're just like, hey, the strangers come up on the trail. I'm going to ask them they're, what? what what's, what's their knowledge about and what have they learned about on this trail? Because I need that information to also have, you know, find the water.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not competing with you for a table at a restaurant. I'm going to help you find out where water is. (laughs) is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And help me find some water. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, so one of the things that um, came up recently, I think that it's kind of changed a little bit, but um, there with social media, there's, there's a lot of um, people posting about like, Hey, this enticing waterfall. I went out there with my friends and we, we hung out. It was so beautiful. And here's a picture. Here's the exact location. Here's the GPS coordinates. Um, and then there was, um, some backlash to that because then the waterfall would become popular. There'd be crowding. There might be people, um, out there who aren't knowledgeable of say, leave no trace, um, ethic and whatnot. And so that kind of started happening for a little while. And then from my perception, it seemed like then there was the opposite where people were like, well, Hey, like that's, that's gatekeeping. Like people don't know how to find information about that waterfall and you know they're gonna find it through social media and then they get to go there and they get to have you know physical exercise to hike there and they get to have the mental benefits of being in nature and they get to have their their bonds strengthened with their friends and family when they're there and so with your research and your writings and whatnot have you come across that type of gatekeeping and how people navigate that
1: yeah I, i mean i think this is like one of the central tensions of our time and like this is this is going to be i actually there's a section in my upcoming book that I'm, I am just finished working on it and uh, trying to untangle it, because I, I think that's going to be the central question of, you know, wildland management and wildland access over the next probably couple of decades. You know, um, hopefully we'll come to some sort of conclusion that works for, for everything. But but there's just that tension between access and preservation or, or conservation. And that I don't see that tension going away because both... Both of those things are important and like vital to 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 these places. And and I, I think I mentioned earlier that I've I've been on both sides. And um, one side of it is I, I wrote a column that was controversial at the time. And it was like why I spoil your favorite hike. Where, you know, at Backpacker, I was on the destinations team, and a lot of my a lot of my assignments, a lot of my goals were to find out where that precious, you know, no crowds kind of hike is and to ferret out roots and to talk to people. And, you know, so I, I'm the person who's showing up and possibly spoiling your favorite fishing hole or, or spoiling your favorite route, um, or mining people for information to share it. And then the, uh, the, my justification at the time, um, and, and I think it, it still is partially true, but not entirely true is that, uh, these places need, they need a constituency. They need it. You know, you can keep it secret to yourself, but if I don't think we should believe that just because something's been set aside as wilderness or, or as a park, that it will always be that way. You know um, if, if anything, we've probably learned a lot that our government, our governmental institutions and things that we think will always be there may or may not be there. So, so it's important for, any wild place to have people who love it so that when the time comes to protect it, uh, there, there are voices who are going to stand up and do that. Um, so that, that was my justification at the time, but then since then, there's been just such an uptick in park visitation and I, I have enough friends and sources and contacts within, um, the park service that, you know, especially with the rise of influencer culture, you you really would see places that are just getting absolutely hammered beyond recognition and and that are really in real risk of certainly not being the same and possibly being, you know, ruined, depending on your perspective. Like there's a place up here in Washington called the Enchantments and the Enchantments are, I don't know if you know about them, but they're kind of in the central cascades and um, there's a, there's this beautiful high Alpine uh, granite, granite peaks with all these like beautiful green emerald tarns. And it's just really, really spectacular. But it's really small. Like the enchantments are probably, it's maybe a seven mile long, maybe even shorter valley uh, and then hemmed in by mountains. So like pretty tiny. And it's just been absolutely hammered and grammed within an inch of its life. And our, our park services and, and, you know, wilderness personnel are, perpetually underfunded understaffed there's just no way to keep up and so year over year it's been pretty pretty eye-opening to see how how um how this place has been impacted and so i think i can understand that uh i for a while the park park line was like you know do not tag things do not take photos of things um because you're just going to attract people to it. Um, And on some level, I I understand that because they're, they want to manage it. They want to protect it. They're, they're at the limit of their powers. Um, But then on the other hand, the cat is kind of out of the bag. Like it's already, you know, it's, it's even something as seemingly obscure as like Andrew Skirka's route over the wind rivers. I mean, that's on the internet too. I can find it and go replicate it, you know? So so I, I don't. It's it's really hard to know where to land, and and I think the, the equity part of it is is huge. The equity part of it is huge too, which is like you know traditionally these places have been the the domain of a certain type of person you know and and like or, or at least in recent years you know and it's really important for people of all kinds of backgrounds to connect to it sort of claim their place in the wild so yeah gate, gatekeeping is hugely risky to be like this type of person gets to go here those who can dig deep or who have access to computers or to the internet and then this type of person doesn't you know that's a that's a pretty toxic place to be so um yeah. I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is there. You know, I, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to know where, where to land on that. Like the, the, I, I think like gatekeeping of, of any kind is, is shouldn't really be happening. You know, you know, everyone should have an opportunity to access everything. But that said, um, I think you can make some personal decisions and personal choices where, like like i said the, the gram thing is out of the bag like you know tagging tagging places like that's maybe a little bit i think that ship has kind of sailed but it doesn't mean that you need to do it yourself and then also uh yeah any place that's been beautiful has been tagged so like almost from like a personal evangelism i would be like you know maybe maybe don't do it because you'll be more present and you'll be enjoying it yourself but then but then also live your life in a way where you are willing to share it with people who are close to you. Take, take people out, spend time volunteering, you know, with organizations that, that help get people outside, you know, Um, in many ways, I think like social media can just, it just can be this multiplier. It can multiply for negative or for positive. And so it's like maybe just take a little bit of a step outside of that and do some things in real life. You know, that, that might be, that might be one path or it's at least it's one path that I, that I feel okay about. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a portion of my book where there's a, my upcoming book where there's a little bit of inherent irony and in that I'm supposed to be writing about hidden gems, uh, in the, in America's national parks. But the minute that this is published, assuming that I find a hidden hidden gem, which, I mean, you know, everybody knows where everything is these days, but, um, if I were to find one and then publish it, it's no longer, it's no longer hidden. Like there's a central irony to the book. And so, what I hope to impart is to get people to find their park and to really get to know it and really get to love it and talk to people who, who live there and work there and, you know, really, really form a personal relationship with that park. Because when you form a personal relationship with the parks or the people or anything, it stops being about like, I got to go to that one place that I saw, you know, that one time it's, it's, you're not, checking something off of a list. You're like, this is a place that I love and enjoy. And there are so many ways for me to enjoy it. And so many ways for me to bring other people into it. And I, I think that's more important than any sort of narrow single place that you might check off of a list.
0: Yeah, Ted, you you, you hit on a lot there. And I think that <laughs> it's really important at the end there to, you know, that you pointed out that the um, love and enjoyment that that's going to help lead to people being stewards of that area, having heightened conservation ethic. And that's that's really important. Um, but yeah, you touched on, you know, the access versus conservation. And so my field of research is called visitor use management. We use mm-hmm. um, a lot of social psychology approaches to understand visitor experiences. Um, and that's experiences in say, national parks, public lands, US Forest Service lands. And, uh, you know, one of the tenets of my field is, you know, if people have quality experiences. They're more likely to Um, have boosted conservation ethic. They're more likely to become stewards and whatnot. But the situation that we're talking about here is a social situation. It's not complicated, Mm -hmm. it's complex because it's a social situation and it's very contextual, maybe with different places, maybe with different management agencies. Um, You pointed that out earlier. And one of the things right now that we see going on with management agencies, whether it's the Park Service, US Forest Service, BLM, whatever it is, there's decreased funding. And with decreased funding means they may not have the resources to do as much active management. Um, and so they might have to do things that maybe if they had more funding and they could do more active management, they would do things differently. But I know that like we're seeing a lot more closures, especially I'm doing some research out in, um, U S forest service land in California. And one of the things that we're looking Mm -hmm. at a lot is, um, different types of closures and, uh, level of public compliance with that. Um, and that's, that's tough. That's not active management. You know, that's, that's something we got to close down and Uh, we don't have the the resources to do active management of course though it does come down to the context for the closure Uh, but then you also touched on you know the equity component you also touched on um some technology a little bit too you know like for me doing a skirker route i used to do these routes with just pure map and compass Um, i started Mm -hmm. them back in 2016 and um i wouldn't bring a gps but now it's like i've come across people on skirker routes that um, did no research in advance. They downloaded GPS route on their phone and they're essentially just following a digital trail. And they're not as prepared as what you would think for doing a route. Yeah. But with that GPS, they're going into places that, um, you know, were maybe a little bit harder to find when you had an app and compass and whatnot. And there's a possibility of sharing about that, but, I think that what's important with this piece of conversation is that there is a big entanglement. It is complex. It's a social situation, but it is great to identify these different components of it just to think that out um, and apply it to these different contexts.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, it's so complicated. And like, it's really hard to, it's really hard to, (laughs) to find a way through. I I just, I just think like the more, the more that you can, the more that you can kind of lead with your, part and with like goodwill like you can you can maybe find find a way through where where if it's less like me me i and more like what what do i want for this place and for other other people you know you can kind of kind of let that go like i you know i think a lot of people there's going to be some tension right because arches for instance like you can't get into arches uh, i believe this year certainly last year i think this year and probably in the future you, you almost need tickets like Disneyland, Disney World to go inside uh, ahead of time. You have to reserve your spots just because it's been, it's being hammered so much. And, and, um, and that's a place where, you know, if you truly love a place, say arches or the desert Southwest, you know, exercise some patience and some compassion for our park workers and realize, you know, Hey, I don't have to go on my marquee place. I just love this place generally. And any day in it is a good day. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go choose something else that's not hammered as much, or I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick another park and just, and just have some like grace when you're out there and like, you know, you might, you might not get the route that you want. And, but that's, you're not going to, you're not going to have a bad time. Like you're not going to have a bad time when you kind of take a couple steps back. And similarly, there's a lot of reliance, a lot of, um a lot of, you know, tension built around like, Oh, I want to go where the crowds aren't, but you know, most people on the trail again are like pretty happy and it takes a pretty extreme situation. Once you're on the trail, nobody likes traffic, et cetera. But once you're on the trail, it's pretty. And like you said, you see hikers one to one. It's like pretty hard. It takes an extreme amounts of crowds to have a truly negative experience, you know? And so just having some humility and being like, you know, I, I, I need to share this place with, with other people. That's part of, that's part of the thing, you know?
0: Yeah. I think, uh, sharing responsibly is part of it for sure. Uh, Um, but yeah, gosh, it's, uh, it's definitely a a tough one for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing all your, your knowledge about that. You've done a lot of writing on that too. And that's something that I, I've honestly not done much writing on in terms of, uh, from the research standpoint, but it's, it's a conversation that comes up a lot in our kind of just circular academic conversations.
1: Yeah. And there might be, you know, I I think there's always opportunities for, you know, new information to come to light, new ways of handling things, you know, uh, I I don't know, you never know, there might be some crazy, innovative solution that we're not thinking about that will, that will, that'll maybe help, help things. But, um, but I think we're in a really interesting time for figuring that out. So, I mean, I don't know, the pandemic is, quote unquote, sort of ending. So maybe people are going to go back to restaurants and bars. I, I <laughs> But I kind of, I think visitation was down just slightly this year as opposed to, to last year, maybe. So who knows?
0: Yeah, well, it seems like there's an indicator there that people are seeking some outdoor recreation, some outdoor opportunities. And, you know, we are extremely lucky, extremely blessed the United States just to have a magnificent yeah. park service. I mean, we have such a diversity of landscapes and whatnot. And we have a lot put aside. I mean, we are like, Completely. compared to people i met from European countries, like, hey, we just didn't have that forethinking to put aside land um, the way the United States yeah. did. So we're so lucky in a lot of ways. But we have, you know, and it's awesome. And it's so good for societal health to see so many people getting out and enjoying nature and enjoying the mm-hmm. outdoors. And I might be speaking a little too idealistic here, but um, gosh, it would be nice to almost set aside more land. Um, I-
1: that's actually what I thought about as, like, an innovative solution, possibly, that we're not thinking about, is, like, you could set aside more land. Or if we identify that, like, people are just drawn to the idea of a park, like, it holds that much power as an idea, which it really does, you could turn, say, you know, a section of the North Cascades that, or the Cascades that is not a park or the Sierras that's not part of a national park, turn that into a new park give it the marquee designation so that it, you know, attracts a certain set of people. And, you know, as a, as a personal steward, it's like, if you know a lot about national parks and you know, they're getting hammered, you know, you can maybe make the choice to be like, you know, I'm going to leave some of these like precious places for, um, for others. And I'm going to go to some of the harder to get to places because I have the experience to do so. Um, like last year, I obviously for writing a book about national parks, spent a ton of time in national parks. So this summer I'm going to try and not go to national parks at all. I'm going to try and okay. go to, uh, other wilderness areas, national forest land, BLM, etc. just because I'm like, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in parks. And so this year I can explore this other thing and, and maybe, maybe do a tiny bit to, uh, to alleviate some of the burden on the parks. And, you know, I, that's It's just a drop in the bucket it just makes me feel good but you know it's it's uh it's something you can do and and kind of going back to that patience thing i had a conversation with a friend not too long ago where we talked about a sacrifice park where um you have certain parks that are going to be hammered with people and maybe that's okay because you need that gateway right like where north cascades is not a sacrifice park it's really hard to experience in full if you don't backpack but you know, out of the percentage of people who visit parks, the percentage that backpacker probably, you know, definitely not 50. I'm, I'm not sure what it would be, but pretty small. Um, and so in that case, I have the ability to go experience North Cascades in its full. And and Yosemite or Yellowstone, something like that, it's a sacrifice park. It's gonna have the crowds, it's gonna have all the people, but it's also the place where somebody from Iowa comes out and has their epiphany where they're like, These places matter, protecting them matters and they don't care that much about the traffic. They just saw a bison for the first time, or a bear or or old faithful or whatever. And it, and it's it's okay. And that, that's that's not to say that that, you know, those places should shouldn't be preserved or protected but it's just like you know some places are going to exist as a gateway drug for parks basically
0: i think so i think so you know like so say like a family from iowa or kansas goes out to yosemite and it's the first time really getting into a natural space like that it's the gateway drug maybe then in iowa or kansas they decide to go to their state parks something mm-hmm. more local and whatnot but you know part of this conversation i was thinking about kansas i live in kansas i live in a lot of different states in the united states and Kansas is our heartland it's an ag state and yeah. a little bit more than 98% of our land is private land here so we have uh like i think 1.8% of Kansas's uh public lands and gosh like i've been i've been i wish there was like a trans uh Kansas trail that could be used for like gravel road biking or backpacking it would have to go through we'd have there there'd have to be a significant amount of land bought up through private land but Sometimes I'm like, Hey, if the federal government can't do this, would that be like just an awesome, I don't know how expensive it would be, but would that just be like amazing, awesome marketing strategy for say Patagonia, or the North face where they're like, Hey, you know what, we're going to, we're going to buy up just like a, a narrow strip of land. That's going to be like half a mile wide. You're going to have a trail down the middle and it's going to traverse Kansas east to west. And we're just going to like, we're going to get that going and we're going to show how much we care and probably would boost their sales. I don't know.
1: Completely. And, and I think you're touching on something like that's really interesting and important to me, which is that the things, the way things have been done doesn't mean that that's the way it always has to be done. Like Similarly, like there were like national parks were not, they were not a thing. And, and this country, we're fortunate, as you mentioned, that, you know, national parks are often called America's best idea. Like it was a, it it was a new idea that, that then came about and created this bounty of, uh, you know, this resource that has just been giving back and motivating and, you know, it's just been such a beacon of who we are. And so that's not to say there isn't a new idea, like building this trail, like, you know, okay, we're a corporate culture. And maybe you get corporate sponsors involved. Think outside the box. I'm I'm drawn to um, in in the Nordic countries. In most of the Nordic countries, they have this policy, and it's it's, it's a governmental policy, and I believe it's called Allmans It's like it's like translated to All Men's Rights, and basically, and it, it dates back to you know Viking medieval times essentially, and the idea is that. You may own land, but no, nobody has exclusive right to any patch of land. It's something that that you share on some level. Every man has the right to move across the country, to move across the land. And so, although there is public land in Scandinavia, in Norway and Sweden um, is, is where I've done a little bit of research, uh, but I, I believe they do this in Scotland too, in parts. They of Scotland, do, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Where, where where you are allowed to move across. Private land, you're allowed to camp. Of course, there are there are regulations and there are there are rules to follow. You know, you, you leave no trace. You're only allowed to stay for a certain amount of time. But it's a different way of approaching it from private versus public. It's like you know, may, maybe there is a different way of thinking about this where it's it's um, you know where owners' rights are respected, but it's also shared in some way. And, um, so that, that's just another way where like there, there could be some innovative thinking and some cultural changes that maybe alleviate some of this pressure and also give more people access to these types of things.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately the thing, right? Give more access to these types of places. And I think that you point out a really great thing in that we don't have to look at this as a binary situation. Like there's, you know, maybe there's ways for people to pass through private land with respect.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I think like a lot. It would take a lot in this uh, America, yeah, to to get people (laughs) to feel comfortable with that. But that's but it's it's not impossible. You know, these things take these things take a long time. You know, you know every every I, I would wager that like most of the national parks that we have and public lands that we have, it's like a it's this constant tension. Like you know, Arctic National Wildlife Reserve. Are we going to drill here? Is this set aside for conservation? You know, it's this conversation. And so yeah. it's going to be like that forever. And my, my main hope is that people just become as involved as they can be and see, see that as important. Cause that's, that's where that's, we get more voices into this. We'll get more ideas and more, more solutions.
0: Yeah. I've, I've actually put this at the end of a final to an undergrad class. Um, mm. And the, the question was like, Hey, we, we live in the state of Kansas. Uh, you know, over 98% of the land is private land. How do we get more public land? And there was actually quite a few students that said, you know what, we are, we're an agricultural state. And that's what my, my grandparents have done for their living. Mm-hmm. That's what my parents have done for a living. I don't want to compromise their land for public land. And like, I was like, whoa, like, you know, I, I never heard that perspective. It's really wonderful to hear that. And I, I was yeah. really, really happy that that got um, shared. But at the same time, so I'm in you know, park management and conservation at Kansas State University. And We have a lot of enthusiasm for our program. It's it's a popular program. It's awesome, Um, and you know, people here we don't have access to you know Rocky Mountain National Park is pretty far away. We don't have access to an iconic national park anywhere nearby, and there's still people that are interested in getting out to public lands. They're interested in studying this, and so there the desire to be outside is there for sure. It's been a wonderful conversation with you. This is something that. I, I could talk to you for another few hours I feel like and this has been rolling <laughs> this has just been rolling like I can't even believe that we've been recording for close for an hour and 20 minutes um, and I feel like we've covered a lot of great topics um, but I think yeah. that you know at this point maybe we should call it an episode and uh, maybe sure. I'll think about bringing it back on to old bodies outside after your book gets uh, released in 2024.
1: Yeah yeah April of next year yeah
0: <laughs> okay nice nice. Well, Ted, thanks a lot for coming on to Old Bodies Outside. Um, It it was really awesome to connect with a journalist, someone who has just a plethora of experience and history out in the outdoors with what you do. Um, You know, sometimes I get caught up in this like very esoteric academia type of approaches and whatnot, and so it's just wonderful for me to talk to someone outside of academia who's really an expert in these topics. So thank you for coming on to Old Bodies Outside.
1: Oh, thank you. It's it's been an honor to be here, and yeah, I really really enjoyed my my time, and I always love talking about this stuff. And I'm really excited that uh, yeah, that your audience is going to hear it and engage with it and keep the conversation moving forward.
0: Uh, and of course, my outro music's no longer working.
1: <laughs> well, you got you got guitars there. I've got guitars here. We can come up with something really quickly. <laughs>
0: Toss some G chords out there real quick. Exactly. <laughs> got Uh, Well, here, I'll I'll also cut that out. So um, let me do like a little exit point here. Um, So hey, Ted, we're going to call an episode. And uh, thank you so much for coming on to Old Bodies Outside. This has been fantastic.
1: Thanks so much. All right. Take care.